0: After the campaign launched, a quiet week passed, then two. In the third week, demand exploded. There were so many orders for Pepsodent that the company couldn't keep up. In three years, the product went international and Hopkins was crafting ads in Spanish, German and Chinese. Within a decade, Pepsodent was one of the top-selling goods in the world and remained America's best-selling toothpaste for more than 30 years. Before Pepsodent appeared, only 7% of Americans had a tube of toothpaste in their medicine chests. A decade after Hopkins ad campaign went nationwide, that number had jumped to 65%. By the end of World War II, the military downgraded concerns about recruits' teeth Because so many soldiers were brushing every day. I made for myself a million dollars on Pepsodent, Hopkins wrote a few years after the product appeared on shelves. The key, he said, was that he had learned the right human psychology. That psychology was grounded in two basic rules. First, find a simple and obvious cue. Second, Clearly define the rewards If you get those elements right, Hopkins promised, it was like magic. Look at Pepsodent. He had identified a cue, tooth film, and a reward, beautiful teeth, that had persuaded millions to start a daily ritual. Even today, Hopkins' rules are a staple of marketing textbooks and the foundation of millions of ad campaigns. And those same principles have been used to create thousands of other habits, often without people realizing how closely they are using to Hopkins formula. Studies of people who have successfully started new exercise routines, for instance, show they are more likely to stick with a workout plan if they choose a specific cue such as running as soon as they get home from work and a clear reward such as a bill or an evening of guilt-free television. Research on dieting says creating new food habits requires a predetermined cue such as planning menus in advance and simple rewards for dieters when they stick to their intentions. The time has come when advertising has, in some hands, reached the status of a science, Hopkins wrote. Advertising, once a gamble, has thus become, under able direction, one of the safest of business ventures. It's quite a boast. However, it turns out that Hopkins' two rules aren't enough. There's also a third rule that must be satisfied to create a habit. A rule so subtle that Hopkins himself relied on it without knowing it existed. It explains everything from why it's so hard to ignore a box of donuts to how a morning jog can become a nearly effortless routine. The scientists and marketing executives at Procter and Gamble, were gathered around a beat-up table in a small, windowless room, reading the transcript of an interview with a woman who owned nine cats. When one of them finally said, "What everyone was thinking," "If we get fired, what exactly happens?" she asked. "Do security guards show up and walk us out, or do we get some kind of warning beforehand?" The team's leader, a one-time rising star within the company named Drake Stimson, stared at her. I don't know, he said. His hair was a mess. His eyes were tired. I never thought things would get this bad. They told me running this project was a promotion. It was 1996 and the group at the table was finding out, despite Cloud Hopkins assertions how utterly unscientific the process of selling something could become. They all worked for one of the largest consumer good firms on earth, the company behind Pringles Potato Chips, Oil of Olay, Bounty Paper Towels, CoverGirl Cosmetics, Down, Downey and Duracell, as well as dozens of other brands. p collected more data than almost any other merchant on earth and relied on complex statistical methods to craft their marketing campaigns. The firm was incredibly good at figuring out how to sell things. In the clothes washing market alone, P&G's products cleaned one out of every two laundry loads in America. Its revenues topped $35 billion per year. However. Stimson's team, which had been entrusted with designing the ad campaign for one of P&G's most promising new products, was on the brink of failure. The company had spent millions of dollars developing a spray that could remove bad smells from almost any fabric. And the researchers in that tiny windowless room had no idea how to get people to buy it. The spray had been created about three years earlier when one of P&G's chemists was working with a substance called hydroxypropyl-beta-cycloextreme or HPBCD in a laboratory. The chemist was a smoker. His clothes usually smelled like an ash tree. One day, after working with HPBCD, his wife greeted him. At the door when he got home. Did you quit smoking? she asked him. No, he said. He was suspicious. She had been harassing him to give up cigarettes for a year. This seemed like some kind of reverse psychology trickery. You don't smell like smoke, is all, she said. The next day, he went back to the lab and started experimenting with HPBCD and various scents. Soon, he had hundreds of vials containing fabrics that smelled like wet dogs, cigars, sweaty socks, Chinese food, musty shirts, and dirty towels. When he put HPBCD in water and sprayed it on the samples, the scents were drawn into the chemicals' molecules. After the mist dried, the smell was gone when the chemist explained his findings to png's executives they were ecstatic for years market research had said that consumers were clamoring for something that could get rid of bad smells not mask them but eradicate them altogether when one team of researchers had interviewed customers they found that many of them left their blouses or slags outside after a night at a bar or party. My clothes smell like cigarettes when I get home, but I don't want to pay for dry cleaning every time I go out," one woman said. PNG, Sensing an Opportunity launched a top-secret project to turn HPBCD into a viable product. They spent millions perfecting the formula, finally producing a colorless, odorless liquid that could wipe out almost any fall order. The science behind the spray was so advanced that NASA would eventually use it to clean the interiors of shuttles after they returned from space. The best part was that it was cheap to manufacture, didn't leave stains and could make any stinky couch, old jacket or stained car interior smell well scentless. The project had been a major gamble. But P&G was now poised to earn billions if they could come up with the right marketing campaign. They decided to call it Febreze and asked Stimson, a third one-year-old wonderkind with a background in math and psychology, to lead the marketing team. Stimson was tall and handsome, with a strong chin, a gentle voice and a taste for high-end meals. I'd rather my kids smoked wheat than ate in McDonald's." He once told a colleague. Before joining P&G, he had spent five years on Wall Street building mathematical models for choosing stocks. When he relocated to Cincinnati, where P&G was headquartered, he was tapped to help run important business lines, including pounds Fabric Softener and in dryer sheets. But Febreze was different. It was a chance to launch an entirely new category of product to add something to a consumer's shopping cart that had never been there before. All Stimson needed to do was figure out how to make Febreze into a habit and the product would fly off the shelves. How tough could that be? Stimson and his colleagues decided to introduce Febreze in a few test markets, Phoenix, Salt Lake City, and Boys. They flew in and handed out samples and then asked people if they could come by their homes. Over the course of two months, they visited hundreds of households. Their first big breakthrough came when they visited a park ranger in Phoenix. She was in her late twenties and lived by herself. Her job was to trap animals that wandered out of the desert. She caught coyotes, raccoons and occasional mountain lion and skunks. Lots and lots of skunks, which often sprayed her when they were caught. I'm single and I'd like someone to have kids with, the ranger told Stimson and his colleagues while they sat in her living room. I go on a lot of dates. I mean, I think I'm attractive, you know. I'm smart and I feel like I'm a good catch. But her love life was crippled, she explained, because everything in her life smells like skunk. Her house, her truck, her clothing, her boots, her hands, her curtains, even her bed. She had tried all sorts of cures. She bought special soaps and shampoos. She burned candles and used expensive carpet shampooing machines. None of it worked. When I'm on a date, I'll get a whiff of something that smells like skunk and I'll start obsessing about it, she told them. I'll start wondering, does he smell it? What if I bring him home and he wants to leave? I went on four dates last year with a really nice guy A guy I really liked, and I waited forever to invite him to my place. Eventually, he came over, and I thought everything was going really well. Then the next day, he said he wanted to take a break. He was really polite about it, but I keep wondering, was it the smell? Well, I'm glad you had a chance to try Febreze, Stimson said. How would you like it? She looked at him. She was crying. I want to thank you, she said. This spray has changed my life. After she had received samples of Febreze, she had gone home and sprayed her couch. She sprayed the curtains, the rug, the bed, spread her jeans, her uniform, the interior of her car. The bottle ran out. So she got another one and sprayed everything else. I have asked all of my friends to come over. The woman said, they can't smell it anymore. The skunk is gone. By now, she was crying so hard that one of Stimson's colleagues was patting her on the shoulder. Thank you so much, the woman said. I feel so free. Thank you. This product is so important. Stimson sniffed the air inside her living room. He couldn't smell anything. We are going to make a fortune with this stuff," he thought. Stimson and his team went back to PNG headquarters and started reviewing the marketing campaign they were about to roll out. The key to selling Febreze, they decided, was conveying that sense of relief the park ranger felt. They had to position Febreze as something that would allow people to rid themselves of embarrassing smells. All of them were familiar with Cloud Hopkins Rules or the modern incarnations that filled business school textbooks. They wanted to keep the ads simple, find an obvious cue, and clearly define the reward. They designed two television commercials. The first showed a woman talking about the smoking section of a restaurant. Whenever she eats there, her jacket smells like smoke. A friend tells her, If she uses Febreze, it will eliminate the odor. The cue, the smell of cigarettes. The reward, odor eliminated from clothes. The second ad featured a woman worrying about her dog, Sophie, who always sits on the couch. Sophie, oh, this dog, the sofa is always going to smell like it, she says. But with Febreze, no, it doesn't. The cue pet smells, which are familiar to the 70 million households with animals. The reward? A house that doesn't smell like a kennel. Stimson and his colleague began airing the advertisements in 1996 in the same test cities. They gave away samples, put advertisements in mailboxes, and paid crosses to build mountains of Febreze near cash registers. Then they sit back anticipating how they could spend their bonuses. A week passed, then two, a month, two months. Sales started small and got smaller. Panicked, the company sent researchers into stores to see what was happening. Shelves were filled with Febreze bottles that had never been touched. They started visiting housewives who had received free samples. Oh, yes, one of them told a PNG researcher. The spray. I remember it. Let's see. The woman got down on her knees in the kitchen and started rooting through the cabinet underneath the sink. I used it for a while, but then I forgot about it. I think it's back here somewhere. She stood up. Maybe it's in the closet? She walked over and pushed aside some brooms. Yes, here it is, in the back. See? It's almost full. Did you want it back? The was a dud. For Stimson, this was a disaster. Rival executives in other divisions sensed an opportunity in his failure. He heard whispers that some people were lobbying to kill Febreze and get him reassigned to Nicky Clark Hair Products, the consumer goods equivalent of Siberia. One of P&G's divisional presidents called an emergency meeting and announced they had to cut their losses on Febreze before board members started asking questions. Stimson's boss stood up and made an impassioned plea. There is still a chance to turn everything around, he said. At the very least, let's ask the PhDs to figure out what's going on. PNG had recently snapped up scientists from Stanford, Carnage Mellon, and elsewhere who were supposed experts in consumer psychology. The division's president agreed to give the product a little more time. So a new group of researchers joined Stimson's team and started conducting more interviews. The first inkling of why Fabrice was failing came when they visited a woman's home outside Phoenix. They could smell her nine cats before they went inside. The house interior, however, was clean and organized. She was somewhat of a neat freak, the woman explained. She vacuumed every day and didn't like to open her windows, since the wind blew in dust. When Stimson and the scientist walked into her living room, where the cats lived, the scent was so overpowering that one of them gagged. "'What do you do about the cat smell?' a scientist asked the woman. "'It's usually not a problem,' she said. "'How often do you notice a smell?' "'Oh, about once a month.' The woman replied. The researchers looked at one another. Do you smell it now? A scientist asked. No, she said. The same pattern played out in dozens of other smelly homes the researchers visited. People couldn't detect most of the bad smells in their lives. If you live with nine cats, you become desensitized to their scent. If you smoke cigarettes, it damages your olfactory Capacities so much that you can't smell smoke anymore. Scents are strange. Even the strongest fade with constant exposure. That's why no one was using Febreze. Stimson realized the product's cue, the thing that was supposed to trigger daily use, was hidden from the people who needed it most. Bad scents simply weren't noticed frequently enough to trigger a regular habit. As a result, Febreze ended up in the back of a closet. The people with the greatest proclivity to use the spray never smelled the odors that should have reminded them the living room needed a spray. Stimson's team went back to headquarters and gathered in the windowless conference room reading the transcript of the woman with nine cats. The psychologist asked, what happens if you get fired? Stemson put his hat in his hands. If he couldn't sell Febreeze to a woman with nine cats, he wondered, who could he sell it to? How do you build a new habit when there is no cue to trigger usage and when the consumers who most need it don't appreciate the reward? The laboratory belonging to Wolfram's thirst Professor of Neuroscience at the University of Cambridge, is not a pretty place. His desk has been alternately described by colleagues as a black hole where documents are lost forever and a petri dish where organisms can grow undisturbed and in wild proliferation for years. Wenzler needs to clean something which is uncommon. He doesn't use spray or cleansers. He wits a paper towel. And wipes hard. If his clothes smell like smoke or cat hair, he doesn't notice or care. However, the experiments that Slurs has conducted over the past 20 years have revolutionized our understanding of how cues, rewards and habits interact. He has explained why some cues and rewards have more power than others and has provided a scientific roadmap that explains why Pepsodent was a hit how some dieters and exercise buffs managed to change their habits so quickly and, in the end, what it took to make Febreze sell. In the 1980s, Slurs was part of a group of scientists studying the brains of monkeys as they learned to perform certain tasks such as pulling on livers or opening clasps. Their goal was to figure out Which parts of the brain were responsible for new actions? One day, I noticed this thing that is interesting to me. Sulz told me, he was born in Germany and now when he speaks English, sounds a bit like Arnold, if the Terminator were a member of the Royal Society. A few of the monkeys we watched loved apple juice and the other monkeys loved grape juice. And so I began to wonder... What is going on inside those little monkey heads? Why do different rewards affect the brain in different ways? Then he began a series of experiments to decipher how rewards work on a neurochemical level. As technology progressed, he gained access in the 1990s to devices similar to those used by the researchers at MIT. Rather than rats, however, he was interested in monkeys like julio an eight pound macaw with hazel eyes who had a very thin electrode inserted into his brain that allowed him to observe neurone- neuronal activity as it occurred one day he positioned julio on a chair in a dimly lit room and turned on a computer monitor julio's job was to touch a lever whenever colored shapes Small yellow spirals, red squiggles, blue lines appear on the screen. If Julio touched the liver, when a shape appeared, a drop of blackberry juice would run down a tube hanging from the ceiling and onto the monkey's lips. Julio liked blackberry juice. At first, Julio was only mildly interested in what was happening on the screen. He spent most of his time trying to squirm out of the chair. But once the first dose of juice arrived, Julio became very focused on the monitor. As the monkey came to understand, through dozens of repetitions, that the shapes on the screen were the cue for a routine, touch the liver, that resulted in a reward, blackberry juice, he started staring at the screen with a laser-like intensity. He didn't squirm. When a yellow squiggle appeared, he went for the liver. When a blue line flashed, he bounced, and when the juice arrived, Julio would lick his lips contentedly. As the scientist monitored the activity within Julio's brain, he saw a pattern emerge. Whenever Julio received his award, his brain activity would spike in a manner that suggested he was experiencing happiness. A transcript of the neurological activity shows what it looks like when a monkey's brain says, in essence, I got a reward. Then the scientist took Julio through the same experiment again and again, recording the neurological response each time. Whenever Julio received his choose, the I got a reward pattern appeared on the computer attached to the probe in the monkey's head. Gradually, from a neurological perspective, Julio's behavior became a habit. What was most interesting to him, however, was how things changed as the experiment proceeded. As the monkey became more and more practiced at the behavior, as the habit became stronger and stronger, Julio's brain began anticipating the blackberry juice. Slil's probes started recording, the eye got a reward pattern the instant Julio saw the shapes on the screen. Before the juice arrived. In other words, the shapes on the monitor had become a cue not just for pulling a lever but also for a pleasure response inside the monkey's brain. Julio started expecting his reward as soon as he saw the yellow spirals and red squiggles. Then Schultz adjusted the experiment. Previously, Julio had received shoes as soon as he touched the liver. Now sometimes the juice didn't arrive at all, even if Julia performed correctly, or it would arrive after a slight delay, or it would be watered down until it was only half as sweet. When the juice didn't arrive, or was late or diluted, Julia would get angry and make unhappy noises or become moppy, and within Julia's brain he watched a new pattern emerge. Craving. When Julio anticipated juice but didn't receive it, a neurological pattern associated with desire and frustration erupted inside his skull. When Julio saw the cue, he started anticipating a juice-fueled joy. But if the juice didn't arrive, that joy became a craving that, if unsatisfied, drove Julio to anger or depression. Researchers in other labs have found similar patterns. Other monkeys were trained to anticipate juice whenever they saw a shape on a screen. Then researchers tried to distract them. They opened the lab's door so the monkeys could go outside and play with their friends. They put food in a corner so the monkeys could eat if they abandoned the experiment. For those monkeys who hadn't developed a strong habit, the distractions worked. They slid out of their chairs, left the room, and never looked back. They hadn't learned to crave the juice. However, once a monkey had developed a habit, once its brain anticipated the reward, the distractions held no allure. The animal would sit there, watching the monitor and pressing the liver over and over again, regardless of the offer of food or the opportunity to go outside. The anticipation and sense of craving was so overwhelming that the monkeys stayed glued to their screens. The same way a gambler will play slots after he lost his winnings. This explains why habits are so powerful. They create neurological cravings. Most of the time, these cravings emerge so gradually that we are not really aware they exist, so we are often blind to their influence. But as we associate cues with certain rewards, a subconscious cravings emerge in our brain that starts the habit loop spinning. Once researchers at Cornell, for instance, found how powerfully food and scent cravings can affect behavior, when he noticed how cinnamon stores were positioned inside shopping malls. Most food sellers locate their kiosks in food courts, but Cinnabon tries to locate their stores away from other food stalls. Why? Because Cinnabon's executives want the smell of cinnamon rolls to waft down hallways and around corners uninterrupted so that shoppers will start subconsciously craving a roll. By the time a consumer turns a corner and sees the cinnamon store, that craving is a roaring monster inside his head and he will reach unthinkingly for his wallet. The habit loop is spinning because a sense of craving has emerged. There is nothing programmed into into our brains that makes us see a box of donuts and automatically want a sugary treat. But once our brain learns that a donut box contains yummy sugar and other carbohydrates, it will start anticipating the sugar high. Our brains will push us toward the box. Then if we don't eat the doughnut, we will feel disappointed. To understand this process, consider how Julio's habit emerged. First, he saw a shape on the screen. Over time, Julio learned that the appearance of the shape meant it was time to execute a routine. So he touched the liver. As a result, Julio received a drop of blackberry juice. That's basic learning. The habit only emerged once. Julio begins craving the juice when he sees the cue. Once that craving exists, Julio will act automatically, he'll follow the rule. This is how new habits are created, by putting together a cue, a routine and a reward, and then cultivating a craving that drives the loop. Take, for instance, smoking. When a smoker sees a cue, say a pack of Marlboros, her brain starts anticipating a hit of nicotine. Just the sigh of the cigarette is enough for the brain to crave a nicotine rush. If it doesn't arrive, the craving grows until the smoker reaches unthinkingly for a Marlboro, Or take email. When a computer chimes or a smartphone vibrates with a new message, the brain starts anticipating the momentary distraction that opening an email provides. That expectation, if unsatisfied, can build until a meeting is filled with antsy executives checking their buzzing blackberries under the table even if they know it's probably only their latest fancy for football results on the other hand if someone disables the buzzing and thus removes the cue people can work for hours without thinking to check, in, check their inboxes scientists have studied the brains of alcoholics smokers and overeaters, and have measured how their neurology, the structures of their brain, and the flow of neurochemicals inside their skulls changes as their cravings become ingrained. Particularly, strong habits, wrote two researchers at the University of Michigan, produced addiction-like reactions so that wanting evolves into obsessive craving that can force our brains into autopilot even in the face of strong disincentives, including loss of reputation, job, home, and family. However, these cravings don't have complete authority over us. As the next chapter explains, there are mechanisms that can help us ignore the temptations. But to overpower the habit, we must recognize which craving is driving the behavior? If we are not conscious of the anticipation, then we are like the shoppers who wander as if drawn by an unseen force into cinnamon. To understand the power of cravings in creating habits, consider how exercise habits emerge. In 2002, researchers at New Mexico State University wanted to understand. Why People Habitually Exercise They studied 266 individuals, most of whom worked out at least three times a week. What they found was that many of them had started running or lifting weights almost on a whim or because they suddenly had free time or wanted to deal with unexpected stress in their lives. However, the reason they continued... Why it became a habit was because of a specific reward they started to crave. In one group, 92% of people said they habitually exercised because it made them feel good. They grew to expect and crave the endorphins and other neurochemicals a workout provided. In another group, 67% of people said that working out gave them a sense of accomplishment They had come to crave a regular sense of triumph from tracking their performances and that self-reward was enough to make the physical activity into a habit. If you want to start running each morning, it's essential that you choose a simple cue like always lacing up your sneakers before breakfast or leaving your running clothes next to your bed and a clear reward such as a midday treat, a sense of accomplishment from recording your miles or the endorphin rush you get from a jog. But countless studies have shown that a cue and a reward on their own aren't enough for a new habit to last. Only when your brain starts expecting the reward, craving the endorphins or sense of accomplishment will it become automatic to lace up your jogging shoes each morning. The cue, in addition to triggering a routine, must also trigger a craving for the reward to come. Let me ask you about a problem I have. I said to Wolfram, sirs. The neuroscientist, after he explained to me how craving emerges. I have a two-year-old and when I am home feeding him dinner, chicken nuggets and stuff like that, I'll reach over and eat one myself without thinking about it. It's a habit. And now I'm gaining weight. Everybody does that, he said. He has three children of his own, all adults now. When they were young, he would pick at their dinners unthinkingly. In some ways, he told me, we are like the monkeys. When we see the chicken or fries on the table, our brains begin anticipating that food even if we are not hungry. Our brains are craving them. Frankly, I don't even like this kind of food. But suddenly, it's hard to fight this urge. And as soon as I eat it, I feel this rush of pleasure as the craving is satisfied. It's humiliating, but that's how habits work. I guess I should be grateful, he said, because the same process has let me create good habits. I work hard because I expect fried from a discovery. I exercise because I expect feeling good afterward. I just wish I could pick and choose better. After their disastrous interview with the cat woman, Drake Stimson, team at PNG started looking outside the usual channels for help. They began reading upon the experiments such as those conducted by Wolframsler's they asked a Harvard Business School professor to conduct psychological tests of Febreze ad campaigns. They interviewed consumer after customer looking for something that would give them a clue how to make Febreze a regular part of consumer lives. One day, this went to speak with a woman in a suburb area near Scottsdale. She was in her forties with four kids. Her house was clean. But not compulsively tidy. To the surprise of the researchers, she loved Febreze. I use it every day, she told. You do? Stimson said. The house didn't seem like the kind of place with smelly problems. There weren't any pets. No one smoked. How? What smells are you trying to get rid of? I don't really use it for specific smells, the woman said. I mean, you know, I have got boys, they are going through puberty and if I don't clean their rooms, it smells like a locker. But I don't really use it in that way, I use it for normal cleaning, a couple of sprays when I'm done in a room. It's a nice way to make everything smell good as a final touch. They asked if they could watch her clean the house. In the bedroom, she made her bed, plumped the pillows tightened the sheet's corner, then took a Febreze bottle and sprayed the smooth comforter. In the living room, she vacuumed, picked up the kid's shoes, strained in the coffee table, and sprayed Febreze on the freshly cleaned carpet. It's nice, you know, she said. Spraying feels like a little mini celebration when I am done with the room. At the rate she was using Febreze, Stimson estimated She would empty a bottle every two weeks. P&G had collected thousands of hours of videotapes of people cleaning their homes over the years. When the researchers got back to Cincinnati, some of them spent an evening looking through the tapes. The next morning, one of the scientists asked Fabre's team to join him in the conference room. He queued up the tape of one woman, a 26-year-old with three children, making a bed. She smoothed the sea sheets and adjusted a pillow. Then she smiled and left the room. Did you see that? The researcher asked excitedly. He put on another clip. A younger, brunette woman spread out a colorful bedspread, strengthened a pillow and then smiled at her handiwork. There it is again, the researcher said. The next clip showed a woman in workout clothes tidying her kitchen, and wiping the counter before easing into a relaxing stretch. The researcher looked at his colleagues. Do you see it? He asked. Each of them is doing something relaxing or happy when they finish cleaning. He said, we can build off that. What if a breeze was something that happened at the end of the cleaning routine rather than the beginning? What if it was the fun part of making something cleaner? Stimson's team ran one more test. Previously, the product's advertising had focused on eliminating bad smells. The company printed up new labels that showed open windows and gust of fresh air. More perfume was added to the recipe so that instead of merely neutralizing odours, Febreze had its own distinct scent. Television commercials were filmed of women spraying freshly made beds and spraying just laundered clothing. The tangling that was there was gone. This tagline had been Get's Bed Smells Out of Fabric was rewritten as Clean Life's Smells. Each room was designed to appeal to a specific daily cue: Cleaning a room, making a bed, Vacuuming a rug in each one, Febreze was positioned as a reward. The nice smell that occurs at the end of a cleaning routine. Most important, each head was calibrated to elicit a craving that things will smell as nice as the look when the cleaning ritual is done. The irony is that a product manufactured to destroy odors was transformed into the opposite. Instead of eliminating scents on the dirty fabrics, it became an air freshener used as the finishing touch once things are already clean. When the researchers went back into consumer homes after the new ads aired and the redesigned bottles were given away, they found that some housewives in the test markets had started expecting, craving the Febreze scent. One woman said that when her bottle ran dry, She squirted diluted perfume on her laundry. If I don't smell something nice at the end, it doesn't really seem clean now, she told them. The park ranger with the skunk problem sent us in the wrong direction, Stimson told me. She made us think that Febreze would succeed by providing a solution to a problem. But who wants to admit their house stinks? We were looking at it all wrong. No one craved scentlessness. On the other hand, lot of people crave a nice smell after they had spent 30 minutes cleaning. The Febreze relaunch took place in the summer of 1998. Within two months, sales doubled. Within a year, customers had spent more than $230 million on the product. Since then, Febreze had spawned Dozens of spin-offs, air fresheners, candles, laundry detergents, and kitchen sprays that, all told, now account for sales of more than $1 billion per year. Eventually, P&G began mentioning to customers that, in addition to smelling good, Febreze can also kill bad odors. Stimson was promoted and his team received their bonuses. The formula had worked. They had found simple and obvious cues. They had clearly defined the reward. But only once they created a sense of craving, the desire to make everything smell as nice as it looked, did Febreze become a hit. That craving is an essential part of the formula for creating new habits that Claude Hopkins, the Pepsodent ad man, never recognized. In the final year of his life, Hopkins took to the lecture circuit. His talks on the laws of scientific advertising attracted thousands of people. From stages, he often compared himself to Thomas Edison and George Washington and spun out wild forecasts about the future. Flying automobiles featured prominently, but he never mentioned cravings or the neurological roots of the habit loop. After all, it would be another seventy years before the MIT scientist and Wolfram Solz had conducted their experiments. So, how did Hopkins manage to build such a powerful toothbrushing habit without the benefit of those insights? Well, it turns out that he actually did take advantage of the principles eventually discovered at MIT and inside Sulz's laboratory even if nobody knew it at the time. Hopkins' experiences with Pepsodent went quite as straightforward as he portrays them in his memoirs. Though he boasted that he discovered an amazing cue in tooth film and bragged that he was the first to offer consumers the clear reward of beautiful teeth, it turns out that Hopkins wasn't the originator of those tactics, not by a long shot. Consider, for instance, some of the advertisements for other toothpaste that filled magazines and newspapers even before Hopkins knew that Pepsodent existed. The ingredients of this preparation are especially intended to prevent deposits of tartar from accumulating around the necks of the teeth. Read an ad for Dr. Sheffield Creme Dentifrice that predated Pepsodent. Clean that door to layer. Your white enamel is only hidden by a coating of film. Read an advertisement that appeared while Hopkins was looking through his dental textbooks. Senidol toothpaste quickly restores the original whiteness by removing film. The charm of a lovely smile depends upon the beauty of your teeth, proclaimed a third ad. Beautiful, satin, smooth teeth are often the secret of a pretty girl's attractiveness. Use SS white toothpaste. Dozens of other advertising men had used the same language as Pepsodent years before Hopkins jumped in the game. All of their ads had promised to remove tooth film and had offered the reward of beautiful white teeth. None of them had worked. But once Hopkins launched his campaign, sales of Pepsodent exploded. Why was Pepsodent different? Because Hopkins' success was driven by the same factors that caused Julio, the monkey, to touch the liver and housewives to spray Febreze on freshly made beds. Pepsodent created a craving. Hopkins doesn't spend any of his autobiography discussing the ingredient in Pepsodent but the recipe listed on the toothpaste, patent application and company records reveal something interesting. Unlike other pastes of the period, Pepsodent contained citric acid as well as doses of mint oil and other chemicals. Pepsodent's inventor used those ingredients to make the toothpaste taste fresh. But they had another unanticipated effect as well. They are errands that create a cool, tingling sensation on the tongue and gums. After Pepsodent started dominating the marketplace, researchers at competing companies scrambled to figure out why. What they found was that customers said that if they forgot to use Pepsodent, they realized their mistake because they missed that cool, tingling sensation in their mouths. They expected, they craved that slight irritation. If it was not there, their mouths didn't feel clean. Cloud Hopkins wasn't selling beautiful teeth. He was selling a sensation. Once people craved that cool tingling, once they equated it with cleanliness, brushing became a habit. When other companies discovered what Hopkins was really selling, they started imitating him. Within a few decades, almost every toothpaste contained oils and chemicals that caused gums to tingle. Soon, Pepsodent started getting outsold. Even today, almost all toothpaste contain additives with the sole job of making your mouth tingle after you brush. Consumers need some kind of signal that a product is working. Tracy Sinclair, who was a brand manager for Oral-B and Crest Kids toothpaste, told me, We can make toothpaste taste like anything, blueberries, green tea, and as long as it has that cool tingle, people feel like their mouth is clean. The tingling doesn't make the toothpaste work any better. It just convinces people it's doing the job. Anyone can use this basic formula to create habits of her or his own. Want to exercise more? Choose a cue, such as going to the gym as soon as you wake up, and a reward, such as a smoothie after each workout. Then think about the smoothie or about the endorphin rush you are going to feel. Allow yourself to anticipate the reward. Eventually, that craving will make it easier to push through the gym doors every day want to craft a new eating habit when researchers affiliated with the national weight control registry a project involving more than 6000 people who have lost more than 30 pounds look at the habits of successful dieters they found that 78 percent of them ate breakfast every morning wow a meal cued by a time of day, but most of the successful dieters also envisioned a specific reward for sticking with their diet, a bikini they wanted to wear, or the sense of pride they felt when they stepped on the scale each day, something they chose carefully and really wanted. They focused on the craving for that reward when temptations arose, cultivated the craving into a mild obsession. And their cravings for that reward, researchers found, crowded out the temptation to drop the diet. The craving drove the habit loop. For companies, understanding the science of craving is revolutionary. There are dozens of daily rituals we ought to perform each day that never became habits. We should watch our salt and drink more water. We should eat more vegetables and fewer fats. We should take vitamins and apply sunscreen. The facts couldn't be more clear on this last front. Dabbing a bit of sunscreen on your face each morning significantly lowers the odds of skin cancer. Yet, while everyone brushes their teeth, fewer than 10% of Americans apply sunscreen each day. Why? Because there is no craving that has made sunscreen into a daily habit. Most companies are trying to fix that by giving sunscreen a tingling sensation or something that lets people know they have applied it to their skin. They are hoping it will cue an expectation the same way the craving for a tingling mouth reminds us to brush our teeth. They have already used similar tactics in hundreds of other products. Foaming is a huge reward. And Sinclair, the brand manager. Shampoo doesn't have to foam, but we add foaming chemicals because people expect it each time they wash their hair. Same thing with laundry detergent and toothpaste. Now every company adds sodium laurate sulfate to make toothpaste foam more. There is no cleaning benefit, but people feel better when there's a bunch of suds around their mouth. Once the customer starts expecting that foam, the habit starts growing. Cravings are what drive habits, and figuring out how to spark a craving makes creating a new habit easier. It's as true now as it was almost a century ago. Every night, millions of people scrub their teeth. In order to get a tingling feeling, Every morning, millions put on their jogging shoes to capture an endorphin rush they have learned to crave. And when they get home, after they clean the kitchen or tidy their bedrooms, some of them will spray a bit of febreze.